The views expressed in this presentation are those of the host and guests and do not represent the views of any lodge, grand lodge, appended body, or any other person or persons whomsoever. Hello, everyone. You're watching the At Refreshment Masonic Video Podcast. For those that don't know me, I'm Wesley Reuter, and you will be watching my interview with Brother Christopher Earnshaw of the Spiritual Freemasonry book series. I hope you all enjoy what's ahead. Um, first of all, I have to say, I've read two of the books. I started on the third one uh, just the other week, and I am just completely blown away by everything you described in the book. Uh, any chance I get, I am telling every Mason I know, hey, you have got to read this. Uh, uh, which books have you read so far? Um, the first one, Initiated by Light, okay, and good, yeah. the second one, Spiritual Alchemy. Okay, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. the third one, Quest for Immortality, I just started uh, yeah. last week. That's a little uh, bit heavier because it's more about the religious, uh, the religious situation at the time, and the the fourth one is a little bit mind blowing for some people. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh. I, I know a couple people that said they started it, but I don't know anybody that's gotten through all four. So uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm definitely determined. <laughs> Thank you. you. Know, I, I, again, they're they're really good. Um, I just started learning about esoterics when I became a Freemason. It's all quite new to me, but the couple things I've read, I'm like, all right, this sounds good, but I'm not really sure if, you know, this is it. Not not even sure if I know what it is when I read it, but right, having right. read the, the first two books, I'm just yeah. like, this is it. This is the answer. <laughs> I mean, I, at least for me, it, yeah. it, it seems like the answer. I, th I think one of them has been that everybody has relied upon older research, Victorian research, and that mm -hmm. tends to be a little bit dogmatic and um, oh, um, doesn't bring into the reason why people did these things and what was happening in society at the time uh, for me, there are five or six things that indicate that Chinese was a motivation for these people. And um, uh, when you read the fourth book, you will find that Chinese language, Chinese words were incorporated in other degrees at that time. In, mm. in the 1740s and 1750s, uh, the... Um, Grand Lodge of the Ancients, they were making new degrees. And one was called the Irish Master, one was called the Scots Master. It actually has Chinese words in the ritual. Yeah. Huh. Just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people think like, you know, we couldn't, you know, we as people couldn't do things that we do now. And we're finding out, yes, we could. We just, did them a little different and it, it took a little longer to get there. Yeah. So yeah. I, it, it's just very, very, very fascinating. Well, first thing I've noticed as uh, with the books, do for anybody first starting them, 
do you need a English or British uh, background or do you need to know the history of English and British to fully understand these books? No, because I uh, put all the important history I've written into the books. So right. the development of, for example, um, let's see, the Catholic issue was a very strong problem in uh, England at the time. We had Catholic kings, but the population were all Protestants. And so I give the history of why that happened and what the effect was on the population. Okay. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I, I know I'm jumping probably a little ahead of myself, but uh, classical education, you've mentioned it a couple of yeah. times throughout the books. Yeah. Um, yeah. How important is it to understand that or to have a little bit of uh, knowledge of classical education? Uh, not really, because anything that you need to know, I've kind of explained. But in those days, well, even in my childhood, I studied Latin at school. It was a set subject. So from uh, about seven until about 12 or 13, I studied Latin every week that is part of a classical education. So now in England, nobody studies Latin or Greek. Yeah, I, I don't hear anybody speak of that. I, you know, when I was younger, you know, it, it, was, it was there in the Catholic church a little bit, but not yeah. too much, at least not as much as, you know, like my mother or grandfather would, would remember. So yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's something else. Why was royalty interested in Freemasonry? Yes, so to begin with, um, I, I don't think they were so interested in, but the Freemasons wanted to have a royalty, a member of the royalty as a figurehead. And um, I think because Chinese was so popular at the time, mainly among, among the aristocracy and, and nobility, not the working people, they didn't really care about China, the working class. But the rich people were very interested in China, Chinese. And for that reason, they, they um, became involved in Freemasonry, I suppose. Okay. So uh, how important was the Royal Society to the creation of modern-day Freemasonry? The Royal Society, well, the Royal Society started in 1660 and Freemasonry, uh, speculative Freemasonry in 1717. So there's a 50 year, 57-year gap between the two. But also the other point is that most of the uh, members who, who were in Freemasonry were also in the Royal Society. And so because uh, science was then getting organized, previous to the Royal Society, science was a single subject. Um, and um, let's see if I can, how to explain it. It was only after the Royal Society was set up that individual sciences became specialties. For example, uh, geology and metallurgy or chemistry. They become individual subjects. Before it was all mixed up and called natural philosophy. 
that's one of the reasons you have a, a degree, a PhD, which is a doctor of philosophy, was a doctor of natural philosophy. <laughs> and so it covers all the sciences. I think in the early days, people were excited. It's rather like um, nowadays, people are interested in solar energy or being able to, to make your own energy, energy creation and things like that. And because of the internet, we're able to communicate with each other and learn off each other. In those days, there wasn't that opportunity. So everyone became a member of the, the Royal Society to see what all the modern experiments were happening and what was being invented. And the members of the Royal Society weren't scientists. They were just members of the population. Many uh, European scientists visiting the Royal Society were quite disappointed because they were hoping to meet other uh, budding scientists, but they were just members of the population who were inquisitive. <laughs> so, but that changed over time. Um, and uh, yes, so the Freemasons, they offered a, um, a kind of spiritual experience that was different from religion. And that interested people too. Okay, all right. And uh, I'm, I can't remember which one of the first or second book, but you mentioned that they started letting in, um, I guess you can say, speculative instead of operative members into the Royal Society. And it seems like they went through kind of what we're going through now, that where no one's an actual stonemason and everybody's just oh. speculative. Yes. I, yes. I, I, thought that, I thought that was pretty interesting. How well, yes. that way. Yes, so um, many, uh, there was a cross relationship between members of the Royal Society and the Freemasons. So um, like John de Sagulier, uh, he was the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge, but he was also secretary to Isaac Newton at the Royal Society. And so there was this cross-pollination. Also, the Royal Society didn't have its own uh, headquarters for a long time, and it used to give lectures in Masonic lodges <laughs> to the Masonic brethren. <laughs> what gave you the idea or what prompted you to write these books? Yes, good question. So in uh, 2016, actually, I, I also have to back up a little bit. At university for my bachelor's degree, I studied Japanese and Chinese at London University at SOAS, which is the School of Oriental and African Studies. I was very interested in Chinese. Uh, I, I found it really, really interesting. Just, not just the language, but the thought processes, uh, the lit ancient literature, people like Confucius and Mencius, their ideas seem to be very fresh and very modern to me. And so in 2016, I was invited to Taiwan to attend a, a lecture series on Mencius. Well, Taiwan from Tokyo is only one hour by, by aeroplane, and you can get there for about 50 bucks. <laughs> so oh, it's wow. Like, yeah, it's just <laughs> like an afternoon out. But um, they had a whole event going, and one of the events at the time was to be initiated into a Taoist temple. And uh, I thought that was kind of neat. So um, 
I applied for that. And I immediately recognized the initiation as being the first degree of Freemason, exactly the same. All the elements were exactly the same. I, just, I thought, this is really strange. And so I came back to Tokyo and I spent about uh, three years researching how there could be a connection between the two. And uh, eventually I stumbled upon Chinese diplomat. He was actually a Mandarin who visited London in 1687. He stayed over a year. He was able to meet many of the, um, because he was a, a very elevated person, elevated being in, in status, he was able to meet the king. He was able to, uh, King James II at the set time. Uh, he met all the most influential people like Boyle and Newton and people like that. And I think he told these people about this secret initi Chinese initiation, which then became the foundation of speculative Freemasonry. Hmm. Okay. So when you were doing this research, yes. when, when did the light bulb come on? Like, I'm on the right path. Or at least for you, how yeah. you found it to be the right path for you. Really from the beginning. Um, because first of all, I looked at the elements of the first degree and compared them to the Taoist initiation. And there were just so many. I think I got uh, 26 elements that were exactly the same. Uh, for example, the most important, of course, is the transmission of the light from the east to the candidate. So that's what the master does. He brings light to the candidate. Well, in Taoism, that officer's name is the light transmitting officer. That's his job. He, he transmits light from the, from, don't, they don't call it the East. They, they call it the, the void of, of potential. <laughs> and this oh. potential brings the light to the candidate. And then the, the candidate is shown the three treasures. The three treasures in Chinese turn out to be exactly the same as our three treasures, um, a, a token and a, a password and signs. And it's exactly the same in Chinese. <clears throat> and uh, Chinese um, temple is run by three officers and they represent the sun, the moon, the, this void of potential, what they call Wu. And in the Freemasonry, of course, they represent the sun, the moon, and the master of the lodge. I mean, it's just so many coincidences like this that, um, yes, I think I knew from the beginning that this, this had to be a connection. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, we say traveling from the East. I always wonder, well, what's the East? And I started reading, it's like, well, uh, back in the day, all churches used to be situated in the east or the cornerstone yeah. laid in the east. I'm like, okay, that's the answer. And I'm, oh, no problem. I, I get it. Well, after reading your book, I'm like, oh, no, I didn't get it because it, it, it makes sense. And at least for me, I do like watching some uh, British time pieces, time period pieces. And I'm always like, oh, man, it, it, there's a lot of Japanese, Asian, I, I'm not sure the correct term anymore these days, but I'm like, well, why is that? And then mm -hmm. kind of clicked reading your book. I'm like, 
you know, <laughs> now some of those shows make sense, more sense to me. <laughs> One of the interesting things is um, uh, Masons have taken for granted is that in the Chinese Taoist temple, they can't talk about their religion or anything to do about Taoism unless the three lights, the three candles on the altar are lit. And so I went to talk, I wanted to talk to somebody about some of the interesting things I found. And he said, one moment, please follow me. So he took me to the temple and he said, first, we have to write, light the candles. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. And it's the first and last thing they do is to light the three candles. And then you can talk about spiritual things. <laughs> now, is there a ritual to light the candles or is it just lighting them and, okay, let's talk? Yes, they just light them in reverse order from uh, the sun, the moon, and the universe. And then uh, I think they go universe, moon, sun. I'm not quite sure the order, but they do it in the opposite direction. And one, there are three officers, and one is responsible for each candle. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that's well, <laughs> it's too much of a coincidence. <laughs> oh, there's more, way there's too many much. more. There's many more. Um, for example, um, let me see if I've got um, the, the star in the middle of the floor, for example, we call it the blazing star. But the Chinese say this is a quotation, represents a quotation from Confucius. This blazing star, well, when I've always wondered what star is it? Is it, is it Venus? Is it... Um, Jupiter, or is it a, I don't know, an asteroid or something? Right. <clears throat> uh, and they say, no, it's the North Star. Because when you look up in the sky, uh, the North Star is a fixed star. It doesn't move. All the other stars move in a circle around the North Star. And that's how the North Star is used for um, uh, guiding ships, because it doesn't move. You know where you are. And so they associated the, the star with um, a, a quotation by Confucius, who said that uh, he who exercises government by means of his virtue, and so virtue is an important point, can be compared to the North Star, which keeps its place while all the other stars turn towards it. So in the lodge, the stars in the center and all the other officers are in a circle around the star. And so it, repre it represents virtue and at the same, at the same time, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yes, virtue. <laughs> it represents virtue. And the North okay. Star. All right, well, well, then things. And then the Ashlers also represent uh, Taoism and Confucianism. And there are reasons for it. And it's just, once I was told, it was just so obvious. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so since you're talking about stars, um, how was Orion's belt important, or was it just nothing? I don't think so. Not. I mean, that's more of, of an Egyptian story, right? Because uh, I mean, we we put a lot of emphasis on that, and the North Star, at least here in the West, is, yes. in my opinion, is just mostly based for Christianity. Right. Right. So. Um, the in the, there's a kind of uh, kind of 
popularity in social history in England, which started in about 1600 with China. And so um, we had the East India Company was established in 1600 and it went to countries east of India. That's why it's East India Company. And it mm -hmm. brought back spices. Uh, after a while, it started bringing back Chinese things like tea and um, we had wallpaper and furniture. But tea was very, because up to 1600, everybody drank beer all day long. They had beer for breakfast and all day long. And even children had beer. It was called small beer. They watered it down. So the word small beer was for children. So mm. 1600, Chinese things started coming into the country and it started this kind of um, boom in things Chinese. And then aristocrats, because they had the money, they started uh, uh, putting Chinese wallpaper in the, in the house, they used to collect Chinese pot, uh, chinaware, and that's where we get the word China from. So um, Queen Anne, for example, she collected all sorts of chinaware. And because the queen does it, she becomes an influencer. And then other people start copying her. And then other people, you know, it's just how things are done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then they started building houses in Chinese style. And we have some uh, in London still existing that have Chinese roofs. Or we built in, um, uh, I think it was about 1730, there's a, um, a pagoda in in Kew Gardens, which is just a bit west of London. It used to be the Royal Gardens, but now it's Kew Gardens. But there's a pagoda there, and you can still walk inside it. It's been there 300 and something, 350 years. Um, but what happened was that um, the, uh, England kind of um, took advantage of the Chinese by growing opium in India and then exporting it from India to China and uh, bringing back not just Chinaware, but actually silver. And uh, this became a real issue with the, the emperor. And uh, it started the opium wars in England and then all trade was stopped with China and England. That was um, about uh, 16, sorry, 1839, 40, something like that. Well, at the same time, what had happened was that Napoleon was in Egypt um, on his Egyptian campaign and he found the Rosetta Stone. And the Rosetta Stone had um, one passage written in three languages. It had Egyptian, uh, I think it was Aramaic and Greek. And uh, they, he took this stone back to uh, Paris and then somebody called Champignon he translated the um, Rosetta Stone. And this is the first time that people would actually understand what Egyptian and Egyptian religion was all about because they could see all the pretty pictures on the walls, but they didn't know what they meant. So then from that time, 1822, second wave of now Egyptomania happened. And so um, we, we started getting in Freemasonry, uh, we got the Egyptian rite um, and Cagliostro, who, who invented this Egyptian rite. And then you got the rite of Memphis and things like that happening, happening in 
France, and Memphis, of course, is, is in Egypt. And uh, then we brought an obelisk from Egypt. Uh, it's called uh, Cleopatra's Needle, and we have it in London. I think in um, Washington also, you, you, yes. you, built, you built one. You didn't import it, but you built one. Yeah, from yeah, 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 they built one. <laughs> yeah, but ours is the original one. We stole it from Egypt and brought it. It's, it's on the South Bank now. So that's Egyptian, Egyptomania. And then, then that went on for another, from about 1820 to about 1870, when um, Queen Victoria was made Empress of India. And now we've got a third wave of Indian interest and collecting Indian things and houses designed in Indian style. Um, you may remember the, the film, it's about five years old, with Judy Dench. Uh, it's called Victoria and Abdullah. And so Queen oh, Victoria, yes, 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 yeah. Queen Victoria's okay. um, servant was Abdullah. Well, that was what it was like in those times. You know, it's just, so we went through these three enormous waves of fashion. So Chinese, Egyptian, and then Indian. <laughs> so <laughs> in the Egyptian stage, well, um, when you're talking about Orion's belt, yes, this is um, when it became very, very popular. <clears throat> okay, all right. But, but I think in the very early days, it was China that got people's attention. <clears throat> okay. So um, what what is it about Freemasonry that makes men curious about joining because uh like for me i learned about it uh from church and i'm like oh well that's pretty interesting that's what that symbol means now <laughs> right. i wanted to find out more about it and that's how i joined nobody in my family was a mason as far as we know from uh from our history so it's like okay curiosity got me but what yeah. is it that I mean, from finding all this information out, keeps guys and keeps new guys wanting to join and keeps guys in the fraternity? As a couple of ways of um, finding out. For my, for my example is, uh, my case, my father, my grandfather were Masons and my great-grandfather, I believe, was a member of the Grand Lodge of England. And so we have this kind of history. They never talked about it, but I knew that they were Masons. And um, they seemed to have a, a really interesting time. Wherever they went, they seemed to know people. Like going to the pub, they'd meet people. Uh, I, I write about it in my book, but just in passing. But um, uh, when my grandfather was ill, he stayed with me and my, with my family. Uh, so we could look after him. And then one night um, I, I went to answer the doorbell and the Speaker of the House of Commons was standing there. This equivalent of Nancy Pelosi standing on your doorstep. You know? uh, yes, yeah, I, I remember reading that part, yeah. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember the face. I didn't know his name, you know, because I wasn't really interested, but I'd seen him on television. And that the fact that somebody who was so famous came to see my grandfather, see how he was doing, that had a really strong effect upon me. The fact that um, Masons look after each other and um, were concerned about. And so that had 
of kind of strong impact. I think the other um, area where people learn about Freemasonry is by what we do. So um, in England, we collect money for hospitals, hospices, old people's homes. We have Masonic hospitals with square encompasses on, on outside. And um, you can get uh, reduced cost, uh, uh, be looked after. At, if you're a Mason, you can be looked after at a lesser cost, I suppose. Um, uh, in America, we have the Shriners and they run their uh, hospitals for burns units and uh, dyslexia and other special ch children's issues. And they don't charge the families or the children for the therapy, which in America can be really expensive. So oh, yeah. by doing good things, people notice this. And then they say, well, who are these people who are doing giving out money or looking after each other or, you know, and I think this is the best way to get new people or to, to, uh, to gain awareness about Freemasonry. Okay. Now, um, the th first three Grand Masters, yeah. uh, how, much, how much, in your opinion, do you think they know, uh, they've known about the previous degrees? There was only a two-degree yeah. system at the time. Yeah. How, how important was that to them to keep some of those traditions into what they were trying to restart or reform? Yeah. So um, I think, uh, <clears throat> and this, this is <coughs> kind of, this area is a lot of guesswork, but they were already operative Masons and they were members of the exception, which means that they weren't operative, they weren't stone Masons, but they were gentlemen who were interested in joining the lodge. And I wonder why people would, like uh, John de Sagulier, you know, he was uh, secretary to Isaac Newton at the Royal Society. Why would he join a workman's club, basically? That's what he did. And um, that got me thinking. So I think they joined to learn about the, what the um, <clears throat> operative masons were doing. And they had already found uh, the teachings of Shen Fujong about Taoism and this remarkable uh, spiritual experience that the Taoists teach. And he, they thought that they could incorporate the two. So um, they would have known from various exposés about operative masonry. The, um, of course, if they were in a lodge, they would know the, the ritual but the ritual was a little bit um, over, well, all over the place. It wasn't published. There wasn't a, a proper monitor. Um, it was taught by you know, mouth to ear. So there was a lot of variation in the ritual. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, if we look at one of the earliest, well, actually, probably the latest <laughs> rituals. Um, it's the uh, Edinburgh House ritual, uh, register ritual. And it looks more like an expose to me than a proper ritual. But um, it's, 
it's a one degree ritual, um, but sometimes two, both the enterprentist and the uh, uh, fellow crafts were given at the same time. So then when the, the first three grandmasters decided to set up their own Grand Lodge, the premier Grand Lodge, one of the first things they, they didn't do is invite operative lodges to become members. They decided to set up their own lodge and they didn't. So they separated um, the operative lodges they called St. John's Lodges. So you had the premier Grand Lodge with the first three Grand Masters and they rewrote all three, rich, all three degrees. The single degree or two degree ritual that they had kind of, of adopted from the operative masons, they rewrote the whole thing. Uh, compare the two, the old exposés and the new ritual, you'll see that they're very, very different. And one reason for that is because of alchemy. Alchemy is a three-step process, and so you needed a third step, and they, they decided to write a third degree, uh, which was published, well, presented in Lodge in 1725. And so now they had a three-degree ritual, whereas the operative masons were still working on a two-degree ritual. And um, therefore, then the separation, uh, what we call the Great Schism, happened. Okay. I, I know we don't know much because if anything was written down, it was either lost or burned, however they did it to keep the secrets. But how much of the original two-degree system ritual has crossed over into the new yes. new system so um if if i look at just the chinese elements uh, and take everything else out the working tools are probably the only remnants of the operative masons so uh and i'm not sure if they were always in the ritual so in 1813 uh you had the union of the ancients and the moderns and at that time, many uh, things that the ancient were unique to the ancients were incorporated into the Grand Lodge of England's ritual. And uh, I'm not sure, but it, it could be the working tools were then put back into the ritual. <clears throat> okay. Now, do we have any of the uh, three grandmasters, any of their writings, personal writings, diaries, or anything that alluded to why they felt, you know, this was something that they needed to rewrite? Uh, no, there isn't. Uh, there's, there's no writing. The only writing that we have is by James Anderson uh, when he wrote the Constitution. And some of the, uh, the, the wording in the Constitution is very interesting, if you look at it carefully. So the first Constitutions were written in... Uh, 1723, and the second one was uh, 1738. Um, if you compare the two constitutions, one thing you notice, first of all, is that in 1723, the idea of the legend of Hiram hadn't been decided. They, they hadn't completed the idea of um, Hiram being, um, uh, let's see, the centerpiece of the third degree. They called him the Prince of Architects, 
But in the second uh, degree, uh, in the second um, constitutions of 1738, then they explain in more detail. The other important difference is that there was no reference to Christianity or Christ or anything in the first, first constitution, but they changed that in the second one, 1738, because many people thought that they were actually deists and not, not um, Church of England. And uh, that was, uh, could have been quite a, an issue, I think. The deist um, believes that God has created the earth and then left control to the beings that he created. So God was no longer involved in our lives. And this was seen as blasphemy by many people. Because otherwise, why do you pray to God and Jesus if they just you know, let you get on with things? They're not getting involved. So <laughs> then in the 1738, they had to, to make sure that, um, that Christ was a central part of, of Freemasonry. <clears throat> okay. All right. Um, uh, another thing in your book, uh, the, the first one, Initiation by Light, uh, yes. I'm on page 43. Princess Pocahontas. Yes. Um, I've heard this story, but not in uh, the detail that you've put it in. Um, okay. I have a um, LDS background, Mormon background, and yeah. there's there's one guy, I can't remember his first name, but I believe his last name is May. And he talked about how some of the early settlers were trekking through to the West, and they learn how to do basically what we would know as the fellow craft sign to, to show that and reading it in the book, I'm like, wow, it sounds like she may have known the sign or something similar. And all of a sudden she's just this princess. I, I, I find yeah. it very fascinating. So, um, well, Pocahontas was in England. We don't know anything about her. We've never heard of her, uh, unless, of course, you've seen the Disney film. Uh, nobody would know about Pocahontas. But um, she did come with her husband um, in the date I'm not sure about. But uh, she visited London. And the important thing was that she was treated as a princess. Well, she wasn't a princess. She was the daughter of a uh, tribal elder in, um, in the New, new Territories, uh, probably Massachusetts or someplace like that. Why they uh, treated her as a princess and they put her up in the best lodgings. Uh, one of the Duke uh, opened his house to her. She was wearing the best clothes where she didn't have that education. She, she was a very rough person. She, you know, until she was 18, you know, she was catching her own food with a knife. You know, she would um, stalk and track small animals and, and kill and skin them there and then. You know, she was that sort of person. But uh, later she, she started to, uh, she learned English and she was then, an interpreter for the settlers. The settlers had a really bad time. Um, they, if they didn't die of disease, they, they died by being attacked by Native Americans, Indians, if you call them that. Um, 
they tried to, they didn't know anything about farming, they weren't proper farmers, so they, they had to barter their, their agricultural tools to the Indians for food so they could live. It was just a complete disaster. And, um, but King James II wanted to make a, a success of this. And so when Pocahontas came to England, uh, he told uh, everybody that she was actually a princess and that she should be treated as visiting royalty. And um, it's just a very strange situation that, that um, the um, new settlements over there, they, it wasn't just uh, King James, but also the people who were investing the money. I think some of the, the large trading companies were investing money. And uh, if it was a disaster, they would all lose money. So they wanted to show that it was so successful that uh, early settlers had, had married into royalty. And this is the story that they were teaching. And um, unfortunately, we believe that um, she caught smallpox and she died in London. She's buried in Gravesend. And in fact, in, in the front of the church in Gravesend, which is um, about probably 15, 20 miles out of London towards the, the, the ports area, um, in front of the church, there is a statue of Pocahontas. So it's, mm. it's just one of those kind of little, little um, sort of small stories that I put in the book. Uh, firstly, that Americans would appreciate, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I, I appreciate all, all these little things. I, yeah. I always wonder, and it, <laughs> it's very intriguing, very, very, very good stuff. Um, now, one thing I definitely did not know, uh, at chapter three of your first book, the Jesuits and, and the West and, yes. and China. Yes. Yes. Um, I was very, very fascinated by yeah. that and some of the uh, funeral rites or death rites that yes. um, they wanted to keep and how hard some of them fought with the Catholic Church for them yes. to keep it because it did not go against a belief in in Jesus, but there was some sort of a battle, I, I guess you could say, about that. Right. Yes. So the issue was um, whether the Catholic Church would allow the uh, Chinese to, to pray to their ancestors. Um, we, we call it the Chinese rights issue. And there were at that time, not just Jesuits, but there were Dominicans, Augustines, uh, Cluniacs, I believe, and other um, monastic uh, groups in China. But the largest was the Jesuits, and they've been there the longest. And the Ch uh, Jesuits were very much into kind of a negotiated settlement. So they were saying to the Chinese, well, if you come to our church and pray to Jesus and our Lord, we will um, allow you to pray to your ancestors as well. And the Dominicans and August Augustines would not have this. They said that this is, was um, blasphemous, etc. They complained to the Pope. And of course, the, the Pope found, um, because he's, there's this kind of ecumenical concept of, of one religion for the whole world. 
Um, they they didn't want to have uh, concessions in different <laughs> different parts of the world where where Catholicism was different. So um, uh, the Pope insisted that Chinese rites uh, was when the Chinese were not allowed to pray to their ancestors. Well, of course, this upset the the Emperor of China, and all the <laughs> everyone got thrown out of China. <laughs> After <laughs> about two hundred years, they'd already built about something like four hundred or more churches across China. I mean, that's phenomenal because that means they have four hundred or probably 800 priests and assistants, all being made Catholic. And the whole organization was set up and they had bishoprics, uh, probably, I think, four uh, apostolic regions, they call them. And they had bishops and everything. And suddenly the whole thing was thrown out because of one small thing. And modern days, we don't really see, you know, it's not such a big deal, but in those days, the the, the Pope was, um, well, he'd already lost England because of Henry VIII had thrown uh, Catholicism out of um, England in 1543. And now the same thing's happening in China. So it was difficult time for him. And uh, I think that the Pope had hoped that the whole world would become Catholic. And so he sent out, he, he had king, Catholic kings sending out armies to South America or to, in fact, to China. But these, they ended up in the Philippines and they, they put a base down there, uh, hoping to use that base to change the Japanese to Catholicism and later the Chinese. And the Pope actually had a theory that he wanted to start with the most um, educated countries that had a, a higher... Uh, literacy rate because they wanted to uh, teach people by Catholicism by um, by explanation and teaching them and good deeds rather than using superstition. So, um, but the the Japanese wouldn't accept it, <laughs> and neither would the Chinese. So, in in the Far East, uh, the Philippines is probably the most Catholic country in the world. And then, of course, you got all South America. But there was okay. a time when he thought he could take the whole world. Yeah, it it's, seems a, a common theme with most rulers uh, back then, probably before the turn of the 18th or 19th century. Uh, everybody thought they can control the whole world. Oh. That, like, the, like the world was this smaller place than what we've actually found out to be. So, yeah. It, it, it's very fascinating. So um, alchemy is uh, is a big thing in your books. Yes. And um, we, we've talked about the Royal Society and you mentioned alchemy previously. So what was it um, about the, th the three grand masters that said, you know what? We can't find a philosopher's stone, but we found something else to change inside. Why was that so important for them? Right. So alchemy was because of the establishment of the Royal Society and uh, things like chemistry becoming uh, an organized discipline. Then 
alchemy was seen as some sort of medieval quest for charlatans. Um, they, after hundreds of years of alchemical experiments, uh, nobody had been able to make gold out of lead. Um, well, the, the reality is actually it is possible and it has been done, uh, but it takes, yes. a lot, it takes a lot of energy. And the yeah, it costs more to do it than, it, than yes. the actual gold is worth. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But they found that out also. The Chinese found that out about 100 AD. Um, they started by looking for uh, an elixir of immortality. Uh, the alchemy in China probably started something like 500 BC, and it was funded by the emperors who all wanted to be immortal. I mean, that was just, they wanted to join the pantheon of immortal gods that the Chinese believed in. And they found that um, a curious stone called cinnabar, which is, is a kind of orange color, when um, heated and treated some way, was you were able to get this liquid metal out of the stone. And this was seen as miraculous. And mercury is a very strange metal because <laughs> it's liquid uh, at room temperature. And they believed that this was a miracle. And so they started drinking this stuff. You know, and they got, they got mercury poisoning, of course. And uh, yeah. something like a dozen emperors killed themselves by drinking mercury. But they, they established the first imperial uh, alchemical laboratories to investigate these things. And they, they sent out alchemists all over China looking for something that could be mixed with alchemy, uh, sorry, mixed with mercury. And they ended up with three principal um, uh, prima materia, which are the three uh, uh, primary elements of um, of, uh, mercury, of, of alchemy, which was um, mercury, mag magnesium, and sulfur. Well, magnesium is a very volatile metal, and uh, it, it explodes very, if you're not careful, it explodes with very little, um, uh, what, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you don't have to prod it very much for it okay. to explode. Yes. So um, in later, so this, these three metals were brought into through the trading routes. They came to Arabia and then into Europe. And it came into Europe in two ways. One through monasteries. Um, the monasteries realized that uh, it wasn't the metals that is important, but it was the, the various techniques that um, came with alchemy. For example, uh, dissolution coagulation, separation, things like this. And they use those techniques for on um, herbs. And they, they wanted to make uh, herbs, they wanted to make medicines and they wanted certain herbs to be less bitter, easier to swallow or to eat. And they used all these techniques. Uh, for example, um, there's an alcohol called Benedictine. Have you heard of it? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a very strange <laughs> um, kind of herbal type flavor to it, but that's what the Benedictine monks uh, invented using alchemy. That's how it came about. 
And so there were many of these tonics and um, drinks. And one of them is, of course, Benedictine, uh, which is more of an alcoholic drink. But in the early days, that was a medicine. So then the other route for alchemy to come into Europe was the southern route when the uh, Moors, who are an Arabic subdivision, I would say, um, the Arabs who live in North Africa and the Moors uh, stormed into Spain and took over the country. They went through Gibraltar. Uh, the Gibraltar Straits are not very wide. And they went into uh, uh, Spain and conquered Spain. And they brought with them these ideas of making gold from base metals. And from there, it came into Europe. So we had these two, two methods. The, the monastic one uh, was then, um, I should say, studied by somebody called Paracelsus. And Paracelsus um, and other people realized that magnesium wasn't a good idea and they changed it for salt. So they ended up with magnesium, salt, and sulfur. And there were changes all the time. But besides these three things, you needed this special ingredient uh, to make um, uh, the, the um, experiment to be a success. And they tried many things, but one of the famous ones was dew. And dew was collected early in the morning and was seen to be essential to the uh, process to make gold. Well, uh, the, the Chinese also had a concept of, of dew, but it wasn't uh, to make gold. It was to be used internally to, to uh, make the internal energy of a person so strong and so unified energy that it could actually burst out the top of its head uh, as in a out-of-body experience and become a wandering spirit. You could look into the future, the past, and come back to your body. You wouldn't experience death. You were able to separate yourself. And that was what the Chinese were practicing. And that's a part of Taoism, um, not modern Taoism, but uh, ancient Taoism is one of the things that they were trying to do, was learn how to separate the spirit and the body. And I believe yeah. this is what is the third degree is all about. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, what you're saying, just a little bit I've read into the third book, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're getting <laughs> it right away. So yeah. um, alchemy seems to be very important. Nowadays, at least here in, in the States or where I am at in Illinois, geometry seems to be the thing to focus on from what the degrees talk about should yes. we really be focusing it on it that much or should we really switch to the alchemical process to be looking at to find the so-called secrets of freemasonry so a lot of um the uh, ge geometry in the lodge actually has alchemical teachings so for example, um, and I, I believe I'm not breaking my oath by explaining this one, but the square encompasses on the Bible in the middle of the room, 
and it's of course above the, the blazing star, which is the star, North Star of Virtue. And then you have the Bible, and on top of this, you have the square and compasses. And beside there are two parallel lines representing the, the Holy Saint John. Well, these parallel lines, um, if you put them across the uh, opening of the square and compasses, now you have two triangles, one on top of each other. And this is the seal of Solomon. And it's the um, symbol of um, uh, the quintessence of alchemy. So in, in the lodge, we have the symbol of the two, two uh, triangles, one on top of the other. Uh, the one with the opening above and the point below represents water and, and the triangle, which is the other way around, represent, represents fire. And the two together uh, is the seal of Solomon and that's an alchemical symbol. And so this, um, this balance between fire and water, if you have too much water, then the fire goes out. If you have too much fire, then the water evaporates. So to get it exactly at the right point is very difficult in alchemy. Um, so there are several uh, symbols like this that uh, are famous alchemical signs. There's a book called... Um, uh, Museum Theatricum, I think it's called, and uh, in it, it shows the three people sitting on, on a, a rock, and on the left is the uh, open triangle, the triangle of the water, and on the right is the woman's holding the fire, and in the middle, she's got the symbol of square and compasses, but with the openings closed. Underneath it, there are seven people sitting there, uh, kind of like under the rock. Well, this explains the, um, uh, the tassels on the apron. There are seven tassels on either side of the apron. Each one represents one of seven alchemical uh, metals that were used in alchemy. Um, so again, this is, brings us back. Oh, yes. And then... Um, on the apron, you will see that there's a little kind of flower. We call it a rose. It's actually a mm -hmm. rosette. Um, rosette. But rose is Latin for Jew. And so basically you have the seven alchemical, uh, alchemical metals and you have the, the, the symbols of Jew on your apron. And it's this Jew that has to be circulated. And it says in the first degree, the lecture of the first degree, um, we're talking about uh, the, the oil um, that's on the forehead of Aaron, the priest, and it goes down uh, through Her Mount Hermon and down to Zion, to the, the foot of his garments, Zion. Mm. Basically, that is A to Z, Aaron to Zion. And H is in the middle. This is again an alchemical story. And if you look at that, read that one more time, you recognize it starts off as oil, but halfway through it becomes Jew. <laughs> starts oil dripping down his throat, and this Jew becomes. <laughs> that 
So if, if you don't read it really carefully, you wouldn't notice that the oil has become dew. And dew is it's on our aprons. It's all over the, in the geometry. The geometry refers to alchemy. There's probably three or four other really important references. And um, so based, what it comes down to is the geometry is a reference to alchemy, but not making gold, but the transformation of the soul. And that's what the Chinese discovered. Uh, and it's part of Taoist teachings that um, by understanding how to change the energy inside you, which they refer to as the Jew, then you are able to have a spiritual experience and it, it's life changing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was reading that, I stopped. I'm like, man, I got, I got to look at some of these other aprons. And I always <laughs> knew there were seven, but I didn't know what it meant. Just, Oh, three, five, seven, the largest numbers. So they put it on the tassels. And I'm just like, wow. Okay. That's what this means. That's what that means. And it, it's yeah. just, at least for me, it, I was never taught that. So well, no, just, no. there's nobody I'm to speculate yeah, that it's just been lost yeah. in the modern yes. translation. Yes. And then if you look at the tassels on the on the apron, they've got little balls on the end. Well, these mm -hmm. are balls of dew. It's dew, a little ball of dew dripping down. And there's seven of them, you see. So I mean it's, it's just so obvious. <laughs> Yeah, now it seems very obvious. <laughs> oh, you know, they're just chains. It, it chains on there. They, it looks yeah. cool, you know. You know, yeah, whatever, yeah. No big deal, but yeah. every little thing has yeah. a, a background to it. Something to exactly. tell you something why it's there. Exactly. I'm just, it's very, very fascinating, and even well, more fascinating why we don't teach these things, at least here in the states or in Illinois, I should say. Why it's no. not taught or why has it been lost? Well, I, I mean, I don't want to boast, but I think I'm the first person to actually identify it and write it out like this because of looking at it from a Chinese point of view and the Chinese understanding of, of immortality. And at the same time in England, there was a discussion, and it's probably the third book you're reading about the quest for immortality. There was a... a um, a uh, major kind of uh, discussion in public about the soul, whether the soul dies on death, is it immortal, or it, does it go to sleep and wait for a resurrection? And there were four or five different theories, and I put them in my book. For example, on a two... Yes, so oh. the, um, the RIP represents rest in peace, and this is one of five or so different theories. And uh, one, one um, uh, what do you call it, a theologian, mm, he, he wrote that um, when the body dies, the soul dies. And he wrote a book about it. And uh, he, this got him into a lot of trouble. Um, his book was burnt and it was seen to be uh, blasphemous by the, the church. Um, so um, the, at the time, Catholicism was losing its power in England. And uh, we had a fire in London in 1666 when the old part of the city was destroyed by fire. And they put up a monument called uh, 
the monument to the great fire and it had a plaque on it um, blaming it on the fire on the Catholics. It had nothing to do with Catholics. It was just a, a baker's, you know, caught fire, one of the bakers and all the, the housing was wood. So the whole city caught fire. But for 150 years, we were blaming Catholics for this issue. That's <laughs> the way it goes. It's like, <laughs> it's like here in Chicago, we've been blaming a cow for destroying the city, for kicking oh, over a candle or a, or a lantern. Uh, and here it turns out it may have been started uh, by a farmer, I believe. Yeah. And just covered up. Oh, well, the cow kicked it over. <laughs> you know, real easy yeah. to to blame animals or other things. So um, one thing um, that I do like in your book, you show art mm. and you explain the art. And yes. how important is it for us today to look back at this art to figure out what Freemasonry is and what it means even still today? Yes. So um, Hogarth, William Hogarth was a... <clears throat> an artist. <laughs> he uh, drew about uh, pictures about society's problems and uh, he made prints and sold the prints. So these pictures didn't get into magazines or to, to newspapers. So very few people would have known about the, um, the existence of these images. But he focused on several. One was to do with uh, superstition and religion. Uh, then there was one called Gin Lane. Uh, in, in that time, people were making their own gin at home and they were making it as a home business and trying to sell it. This had been supported by King William III, but he had um, promoted the, the, the uh, production of gin because we were importing French brandy and wine uh, from France. And he said, no, we, we've got to have some local drink to stop our money going over abroad to the French. So he promoted uh, gin. And, uh, but the problem was he didn't um, think it through. And then the law allowed anybody to make it. It took like 50 years to get it under control. People were making gin all over the place. They were going bl blind the production in the country fell by 50% because people didn't turn up to work. They were so drunk. And gin was very cheap to make. Um, and the second thing was, of course, that uh, King William III was Dutch. And uh, they grew the juniper berries to flavor gin in Holland. So he was importing from his country, which he thought was a good thing, <laughs> giving money to the Dutch. And we have this, so that's why gin is often called London gin. It was the plague of London. Anyway, Hogarth drew some really um, brutal pictures of this. And another one that he drew um, was to do with the Gormagons. And uh, it was pointing a finger at Freemasons. And it's by looking at it very carefully and understanding what he's trying to say and you can see a story in there. And at the bottom, he identifies the people. Um, and uh, he sometimes adds a few notes at the bottom. So the picture of the Gormagons, um, 
is, I think it was 1724. The Gormagons was set up by um, uh, Philip, the, the Duke of Wharton, and the first aristocratic Duke of the Premier Grand Lodge was the Duke of Montague. Now, when the Masons uh, elected this Grand Master, they were very happy. This is the sort of person they wanted to uh, lead Freemasonry, because they realized if you had a, a famous, respectable person leading the, the organization, other people were going to be attracted to it. They either wanted to meet the Duke because it would lead to um, business deals or other things like that, or they just felt that it gave an air of authority and respectability. Well, um, he, he, was, he had a few problems of his own and um, <laughs> he stepped down as Grand Master. Uh, he nearly bankrupted his family and uh, there were some issues there. Um, so along comes the second uh, Grand Master, who's the, the Duke of Wharton, Philip, Duke of Wharton, and he virtually elects himself. And he tells people, you know, he gets a group of people and says, oh, you've got to vote for me. And he sets up a, um, a, a lodge meeting and he gets everyone to put their hands up. And then he was <laughs> just, just like that. So he turns up and said, oh, I'm the new Grand Master. I've just been elected, which was a little <laughs> bit strange. But um, he was a follower of the Jacobites. And the Jacobites were followers of King James II. By this time, the beginning of Freemasonry, uh, the government was Hanoverian from George I, from Hanover. The reason we've had a German and a Dutch king is because they were Protestants and we just didn't want any more Catholic <laughs> kings. We had such a problem that the, the, the era of the Stuarts, which I write about in my book, very interesting because we the country was Protestant, but the people running it were all Catholics and they made concessions for their friends, like the Dukes of Norfolk, who, who turned out to be Catholics and uh, they were doing favours for them, etc. And Parliament was trying to bring in laws to restrict Catholicism. But um, little by little, the church changed from a Latin liturgy to an English language liturgy so that most people could understand what it was all about. Um, and so we were trying to get away from Catholicism. And uh, so beginning of the Premier Grand Lodge, uh, King George I was king. But uh, Duke of Wharton still promoting this Catholic story. He wanted to have a Catholic king in England and and he caused lots of problems because he was um, a duke. He was automatically a member of the House of Lords. He would make speeches. He wrote articles for magazines, uh, all sorts of problems. And um, it, it got to such, after six months, the, the Premier Grand Lodge had, not, had, had too much of the Duke of Wharton and uh, they expelled it. Well, they, told, they asked him to leave and they got an, another aristocrat to take his place. But in the early <laughs> days, there was just so much, um, I, it's hard to say really, that they were kind of 
we would say they were winging, winging it, you know, because they, okay, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have it all sorted out, what sort of aristocrat they want, and or the, the rules were still being thought up, and the, even the rituals were still being thought up. So um, they were finding their ways in the early days, and to me that's the whole interest of looking at the origin of Freemasonry, the, the first 40 years, 1717 to about 1760. What were the objectives? Why, why would three members of the gentry give up all their, their precious time to rewrite an operative stonemason's ritual? What was the benefit to them? Why, you know, it's like, um, like a doctor joining the Dockers Union and say, okay, let's reorganize your union for you. <laughs> so, you know, why would a doctor do that? He wouldn't do that. And in those days, so there had to be something really special. And I believe uh, that they had found this secret teaching of Taoism by uh, Shen Fujong, who'd stayed at Oxford University for a year. And uh, he met the um, Thomas Hyde, who was the curator of the Bodleian Library, the, the chief librarian at the Bodleian Library. They both spoke Latin to each other, which is interesting. But um, that was uh, the secret that the first three grandmasters were introducing to England using the vehicle of operative masonry. It's just mind blowing to me. All, all this stuff that you found, it's like well, you, you delved in this so many get things to... in the first two books. It's, you know, how much more could you, you write? <laughs> down and i'm wondering if you're still finding more even after writing all four books yes, yes um i think the most uh, revealing is the last one the uh, royal arch um freemasonry royal arch because that gives the secret um teachings of taoism uh how it uh fits into the third degree um but yes, I did find something quite recently, and that was a little bit of a surprise. And I added it to one of my later books, and I'm not sure if I have it. Okay, yes. Um, so in the Zhou Dynasty, which was about um, 1000 BC to 250 BC, uh, the China was run by kings, and China was divided into several countries, uh, yes, countries. And it wasn't until about 250 AD that a single king was able to join all and conquer them or to negotiate um, a treaty with them and make a single country called China. And at that time he called himself the first emperor. Before that, they were all kings. Uh, so the king of the Zhou dynasty, and there were about over this 1000 to 250 BC, there are about uh, 25 or 30 kings, but they were supported by three top officials. And the uh, so in the government, there was a three, rather like in Taoism, and one of them was called the Grand Protector. Presumably he was doing all the military stuff. And then you had the Grand Tutor, who was probably looking at the legal system, etc. But the most important person was the Grand Master. <laughs> That's mm. it. So 
you've got the idea of a grandmaster supported by two other grand officers. Tutor and protector became the warden, <laughs> senior warden and junior warden. I don't know, but this is something I came across and I, I added it to one of my books as an addendum. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did read that somewhere else, and I'm like, you know, just me thinking, like, wow, that, that sounds like, you know, Greece, the unification of Greece when they finally decided yeah. to being yeah. stop being separate states and be one yeah. country, you know, one yeah. people. It, it, yeah. Very, very, very similar. Yeah. Um, yes. Now, all right, let's see, where am I? I lost my place. Excuse me. Oh, um, all right. In uh, in your second book, chapter two, the uh, chapter two, the Enlightenment from Bacon yes. and Flood to Newton and Libsen, I, I think I'm pronouncing Leibniz. that correctly. Leibniz. Okay. All right. Okay. Why the importance of these men and others uh, you include in the chapter, the organizations they were involved in, such as Rosicrucianism, the Royal yes. Society, and the Invisible College. Why, well, why the... because Bacon probably started the Enlightenment in England. He um, looked at science in a totally new way, and he said that it, it had to, science had to be done on experimentation, and the experiments had to be repeatable by somebody else. Doing the same experiment, you'd have to get the same result. This was that before. They, their science came from people like Aristotle, and they were reading ancient books about, you know, how, how people understood science. He, he turned it uh, on its head. And I believe um, that um, one of uh, Bacon's books, uh, New Atlantis, they're talking about um, uh, a country called Bensalem, which is off the coast of Chile. And the, the organization of the of the uh, of this is Bensalem is so much like Freemasonry, it's really interesting. So again, I think the Royal Society and also Freemasons saw him as a kind of um, grandfather of th this whole new enlightenment. Uh, the, when you look at the, uh, the history of the Royal Society written, written by somebody Spratt, the, in the beginning of the front page, there's a, an engraving of, um, of King Charles II, and on one side uh, is sitting Bacon. Well, Bacon had already been dead by uh, dead some 50 years, but it showed that Royal Society was looking for the um, financial support by, from King Charles II, didn't actually happen, but that's what they were hoping. They were they were making uh, him their, their kind of, uh, I forget my English sometimes. I don't use English that much, but anyway. Oh, so I don't um, use it that much either, so don't worry about <laughs> okay. it. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes the words just go out, out, out of my head. But they wanted him to be the, the figure uh, that represented the society and supported by Bruckner, who was the first, uh, Lord Bruckner was the Irishman, but he was the first uh, president of the Royal Society, and Bacon. So this is the beginning of the Enlightenment. And then Leibniz was very interested in Chinese, and um, he also studied Taoism 
And the Royal Society in the early days was looking for an international language, one single language that was the basis of all languages around the world and could also be the basis of all religion. They were looking for a single, rather like um, singularity. Uh, we talk about it in, in physics, astrophysics, the singularity. Well, right. that's, they, they were thinking something similar. And the languages they were investigating were Hebrew and Chinese. <laughs> Why Chinese? <laughs> but they said, you know, the Chinese is too complex and too difficult to learn. So probably wasn't the first language. But that's how they, they were so impressed by the by Chinese. And many people believed, and including Leibniz, uh, they wanted something called the reunification of the churches. So instead of the Protestants and Catholics always fighting each other, you know, we had the 30 years war where the two religions were fighting each other for 30 years in Europe. So this, so this didn't happen again. They thought there should be a way to, to um, join both religions in a single religion. And one of the things they looked at was joining Christianity with Confucianism. Because Confucianism is not so much a religion, it's a way of life. And that's the same for Freemasonry. It's not a religion, it's a way of life. And mm -hmm. so Taoism also isn't. It's just how you live your life. And so they thought that the moral teachings of Taoism and Confucius would be excellent when combined with Christianity. And that's what the Royal Society was trying to do. And what in Germany, one of the leading figures was Gottfried Leibniz. And uh, then it, it gets even more interesting because um, he was in contact with a, uh, a Jesuit called Bouvet, French, French Jesuit in China. And the Jesuit sent him uh, a picture of the um, yin yang, the, the symbols of the not, not, not the yin yang, the yi jing, sorry, uh, the, the dashes and dots that make up a hexagram. And uh, there were so many combinations, 64 combinations of this, and they sent it a picture of it from uh, China to Gottfried Leibniz. He recognized it immediately as being the origin of binary uh, mathematics. Binary is only one and zeros. This is dots, dots and dashes. It was the same thing. And he said that gave him the idea of binary math, mathematics. And uh, he then published a paper uh, in, in, the, uh, in France, but it was also in the, the Royal Society about binary mathematics. I mean, just the whole world was starting to come together with ideas. And so, um, so I chose uh, uh, Bacon and Leibniz. Yeah, it, it, you know, it amazes me how, you know, how far we advance, you know, at least we call it advancement with computers and everything. Yeah. But we're still looking to the ancient knowledge to solve modern day problems. Well, it, we possibly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of it, you know, or at least, you know, when you turn on a computer, like, oh, they, you know, the ancient people can't know as much as, you know, I can find out, but they didn't have Google and still yet they seem smarter to me than 
some of us today. I think that the, I think that the ideas, because they were unique, they they filled a gap, uh, a large gap, and that seems wow, that was awesome. Nowadays, all the large gaps have been finished, filled, and there are only very small gaps in our understanding. And when somebody uh, discovers the answer to that gap, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal. That's probably the issue. So in the, in the early days, they had major gaps, <laughs> like batteries. <laughs> they invented <laughs> they had batteries, but uh, they were still learning how to use batteries. But nowadays, we've got, we got not just batteries, we've got lithium batteries and solar batteries, etc. If you invent a new battery, it isn't such a big step, but it's a small step. I mean, it's, it's fantastic, but um, probably it doesn't seem quite so mind-blowing as somebody in the 1500s inventing a battery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, maybe they did have it to work and we're just too dumb to figure it out. I mean, we got all these machines and stuff. We can't even figure out how the pyramids were made. It's like. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, actually, there's, there's a, uh, a great writer called Mustafa Gadala, and um, he's published on, the in, uh, on Amazon. I think he's self-published. And he, what he says is that the stones of the pyramid were actually concrete. They made them in situ. They, made a, they, they put a frame and they poured the concrete and they mixed the stones there and then. And they took the frame and just moved it two foot to the left and put another one in. And he's got, <laughs> proof, he's got proof for that. So really? we, look at, we see it as stone, but in fact, it's a form of concrete. Yeah. Oh, okay. That, that's interesting. I, and I know we're getting a little off subject, but I, I seen a documentary um, where they had like satellite imaging and this guy, I, I can't remember the archaeologist's name that came up with this theory, but that they were built going up in a square a pattern a all the way up. Like, yes. To me, that makes sense because yes. we can't find ramps and stuff. You know, we're just... Uh, again, yeah. uh, something lost throughout history that's just not... Well, it's, it, the closer you get to the top, the, um, the area, first of all, to, to stand around and move very large rocks is, just isn't there. You need, say, 200 people to pull a two-ton rock. Well, you, when you've only got you know, 30 square feet, where are all the people going to stand? You know? They can't pull the rock. Second thing right. is... Is when you get near the top, the ramp of earth to be able to pull the, the, is probably two or three miles long. To build the ramp of a gradient yeah. that you could pull a stone up, you know, go for <laughs> miles. You know, that's a bigger, a bigger deal, making that ramp than it, making the actual um, pyramid itself. But if you yeah. just bring materials up the side, like water and different types of stone, and one of the things... Uh, 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 Gustafa Madala talks about is if you look at some of the stones, you can see a kind of line across the center of the stone where they've made two mixtures. And this happens in modern uh, buildings as well. When you mix concrete a second time, you're never going to have exactly the same mixture. 
even though you, you get one bag of cement and you get one bag of sand and you put eight liters of water in, somehow the color is slightly different. So you, you can't, you're making a, a, what we call single pour. You're making a concrete wall. You do a single pour, you know, pour it all in at once. You, you don't make half and then add half because that where the two mix is, is a sign of weakness. But you can see that in the pyramid. Certain stones have a kind of wavy line where a second pour was added later. And he, mm. he's, that's how he came to his um, uh, understanding. And that, doing it that way, then you only need 100 people just to keep bringing water and cement. And they were using um, arsenic as an ingredient. To, to, I think old, if you look at old... Um, uh, Roman times, they had they were making uh, cement, and they use arsenic in the cement. And this, uh, the Hebrews were sent to the mountains to dig up arsenic because it was poisonous. And the Hebrews were slaves for the Egyptians, so the Egyptians wouldn't do the dirty work. Sent the Hebrews to dig up the arsenic to put in the cement to make it solid. And, and to me, that makes real sense, you know, <laughs> how to build a pyramid quickly without much cost. <laughs> <laughs> Learn something new every day. I, I never heard that theory before, and I'm very interested in all that. You, you've got I, to, if you like before. Egypt, you've got to read Mustafa Gadala's books. He's got about 20 of them. He, he, he shows um, the uh, biblical origin of Christianity, all the symbolism how it fits in with Egyptian uh, history. And um, each book has something just uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, he's, he's kind of my hero figure. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, stenography, how important yeah. is that to read, as you, as you put it, the signposts? Yes. So... Um, my feeling was when the three grandmasters, they spent about eight years rewriting the two degrees and then inventing a third degree to make a three degree ritual. And one thing they didn't want to do was to make it cheap. They didn't want to make it obvious. You read it, oh, okay, yeah, so what? They wanted to make it a challenge for people to discover. So they made it as a puzzle. And um, I believe that at the time, um, a very popular book um, was is called Mercury, the Secret Messenger. Um, and that book was very popular in England at that time, people at the time of 1717. And so they would know the book and they probably used some of the techniques uh, to write the, not only write the ritual, but to write the, the words in the monitor. So now the monitor, we tend to use only the um, consonants, we leave out the vowels, and that is what is suggested in this book, Mercury, the Secret Messenger. They say, you know, if you want to write um, uh, a, a um, cipher, take out all the vowels. <laughs> well, it's just one of the ideas that, that's given in the book. Um, okay. Steganography is interesting because it's one layer more difficult than cryptology. And it tends to use images 
to teach a secret message and cipher, which is uh, word replacement or letter replacement, or where you have to have a keyword. And in the um, uh, the uh, in the in the Constitution of 1723, Disagulia says that there is a secret word to understand the rituals by. You know, okay, right. What what is that word? <laughs> so that got me starting as well. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, it, when it comes to the signpost, you uh, hmm. say in the book that there's 25. Yes. Is it, in in your belief understanding only 25, or do you think that there's more to be found? It's true. There may be more. Um, I, I think I found enough to prove my point, my hypothesis. There may be other ones. Um, in the last book, I list up all the, the, the 25 and I explain all of them and why the 25th is so unique um, signpost that it's, it could only be understood one way. <laughs> um, so, for example, in... Um, some of the oaths and uh, the lessons, sometimes there are words or sections missing. Now, nowadays, we don't really know our Bible so well that we recognize bits are missing. But in those days, everybody, they knew the Bible very well. And they had to go to church every week by law. And so if you were reading a passage from the Bible and you came across Hold on a second. There's two verses missing. I'm sure it says, and that's what we find in Freemasonry. And so then you go back and look up those two, two verses and say, oh, OK, then this is interesting. And that's what I call a signpost because it, it should be there, but it's not there. And that way um, it is showing something else. And one of them has to do with... Uh, Chinese and Taoism. One of the central teachings of Taoism is to have a child's heart, the heart of a child. Well, by that, it doesn't mean to be childish. It means to be inquisitive, to be uh, um, uh, trusting, and um, well, I'm forget, <laughs> forgetting the words again, sorry. But uh, yes, yeah, so, yes, innocent, yes. So, you know, they're always asking questions, uh, embarrassing questions to us, but to them, they just don't know the answer. They want to know the answer. And this is, in Taoism, is the way to be as a, as a, as a person. You know, you're, you're not um, uh, stopped by what society believes or tells you, you know, you, you shouldn't talk about sex at the table. Well, you know, the child would say, you know, why were you sleeping with her? She's not your mother. <laughs> you know, <not> my mother. <laughs> no, that's just a simple question. But you know, <laughs> suddenly, right. you know, to an adult, they would never say that because it's, it's you know. So anyway, but that sort of question, that sort of uh, thing about the innocence of um, children is one of the signposts that's in Freemasonry. Do you think discovery was one of the things they really wanted to present to the to the new member or even to the old? Because 
when you talk about alchemy, it took years for them to get to a point to think, well, we didn't find what we we're looking for, but we found something else. And through that, yeah. we discovered all this. They want to bring that same attitude, that same, wow, you like Eureka to say uh, to the members. Yes, I think that was one of the reasons they used stenography is because they wanted to make the quest of discovery something that's valuable to the individual rather than saying this is what the second degree means and that basically that's what I'm doing when I write a book but really I want people to look at it for themselves you know what does three five seven steps mean and at the top of the steps you receive you know a special unique gift whatever you know three five seven these are alchemical teachings and at the top is an alchemical discovery a prize you know, so, oh, okay, yes. So in those days, I think they would recognize it automatically. Oh, three, four, oh, okay, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the feeling of discovery is so much more enlightening. It means so much more than somebody just pointing yeah. it out to you and telling exactly. you. Exactly. So when you discover it, it becomes exciting and interesting, and you want to do look at it more. And I think that's what they were trying to teach. So... Right. Um, the um, questioning, when you work the questioning, the ritual, the center of questioning is quest, quest, Io and Jing. So the quest of the ritual is what's important for people to learn and to discover and to try and understand. You know, um, the lectures are very important. They are very important. The whole thing's important, but particularly the lectures. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, people don't really think about um, the death of Hiram and um, what happened when he was raised from the grave. Well, he was dead. He was might have been a skeleton by that time, eaten by all the insects. So what were they raising? Skeleton. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah well, they, why would they do that? <laughs> why would they do that? <laughs> no, there was something else that they were raising, and that's what you know. You got to think about it, you know. And then, then the uh, the lion's paw. Of, uh, sorry, the 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 strong grip or the lion's paw of the uh, tribe of Judea. This phrase. What is it? Well. If you, if you know the uh, book of Revelation, I wrote another book about um, tarot called the Tarot of the Revelation. So I knew that the Lion of Judea in the book of Revelation refers to Christ. Ah, so it's Christ that is actually pulling the dead body out of the grave. Now, hold on a second. Why would he pull a dead body? He's pulling the soul of Hiram. He's elevating the soul. Okay, now things are slightly different. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You know, for me, every time I see, and especially the first time I went through the first two degrees, I'm like, this is very Judaic, very, very Jewish. But when it comes to certain yeah. parts in the third degree, it's just like, there's Christianity right there, and you, yeah. you just can't miss it. You right. know, um, uh, well, 
A classic the, is the like similarity the between yeah. Lazarus and Hiram. You yes. know, they told Jesus, "Don't go in the tomb." You know, he's already decaying, and you know, I, you yeah. know, basically, I'll show you otherwise. And yes. I've seen those similarities very prominent in the third degree. Also, um, when the craftsman stands by the grave of Hiram and uh, he's explaining to uh, King Solomon, he says, he puts that, you know, east and west and six foot deep. It was six foot east, six foot west, six foot deep. If you just say it, that means nothing. But if you hold your hand out left and right and bow your head to look down, that's the sign of the cross. Yep. Over Hiram's grave, you see. So you've got all of these things, you know, that we, they would have, you know, in those days, with that type of education, they, what I call a classical education, that mm. would stand out. But nowadays, people point six foot this, six foot that, six foot down. That kills it. That kills it. You've got to yeah. make the sign of the cross. You know? <laughs> oh, now, okay, we got something else. <laughs> Yeah. You know? but, and so, one of the okay. reasons is because, um, uh, so when we look at the social history of the time, the uh, government was were very worried about organizations that were trying to threaten, mm -hmm. either bring back um, Jacobites or threaten the government. They were worried about the Inquisition, which was still strong in Europe at that time. And so here are aristocrats and rich people having secret rituals and meeting in dark rooms with just one or two candles. What the hell are they doing? <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. so the Freemasons, I believe, had to show that they were doing what uh, guilds had done for hundreds of years and the guild system in England, uh, where one form of uh, profession, for example, people making saddles, a saddler, um, he could only do that job. He wasn't allowed by law. He couldn't change and, and make uh, arrows or barrels, coopers and fletchers. He couldn't do that. He could only make saddles. He had to have an apprenticeship, etc. And that's what he did for all his life. These uh, guilds, once a year, they had a holiday to recognize their patron saint, and they put on, on plays, uh, short plays, either taken from the Bible or uh, the, the lives of saints. Uh, these were called mystery plays or miracle plays. And that's exactly what Freemasonry looks like in the third degree. Anybody coming said, this is our miracle play. We're a guild of masons, stonemasons, and this is what we're doing. And I think that would um, uh, give them kind of uh, protection from the law at that time. Hmm. So you so, have to have a sprinkling of Christianity in the, in it, yes. right? Yeah, it, it, like at the end, yeah, just uh, yeah. just a little bit of it to kind of tie it all together. So, right. how much harder is it for the modern day Freemason to discover all this without the classical education or the you know having a Bible education as they did? Uh, back in those days in the formation of 1717 in Freemasonry? I, I don't want to brag, but I think it's simple. If you read my book, I explain. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, without, without that, uh, my chance, um, 
going to a, a Taoist in, in initiation? I think it's nearly impossible, nearly impossible, because there's so many layers in Freemasonry. And uh, when you start picking at one layer, something else opens up and then, oh, wow, yeah. And, and that's what I've been doing for four years before I started writing. Um, mm. it, it's, it's not too easy. <laughs> No, no, not, not at all. I mean, I, obviously, reading your books have just opened up a, a complete new world to me. And just seeing the degrees, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember reading about that. Yeah, now I understand that. Different, you know, yeah, I, so that's, and... yeah, that's one of my um, uh, um, objectives was to make Freemasonry more interesting for people who, like me, I've been a Freemason 38 years. After a while, it gets boring. You're doing the same things, you know, yep. and you feel like you're, you're in a factory, you know, like uh, I remember Charlie Chaplin, he was in a factory and just doing <laughs> the same job and you know, nuts and people, conveyor belts and here comes a new mason, same stuff, we all go home, you know, uh, but there's more than that. It's, it's, there's some, has to be something for you to experience in Freemasonry. And then you, if, if you find... Um, a thread you put on the thread it all unravels but most people don't they're not looking for anything they think they know everything there's nothing more to look for and they lose they lose it which is a shame right. you also mentioned uh in the old charges what is the lost q source oh lost q source so that's in the bible um so um theology is also one of my interests and the four books of the gospels um, are all related to a an earlier source which has been called q uh, they just put a name because they didn't they haven't found it yet but when they they look at the stories and how they've been taken and um, been developed in matthew mark luke and john they obviously come from something else, and this original document is called Q. Okay. Also, it's right. actually quite interesting. Um, when I was first made a Mason, I was given a Masonic Bible, and in the, in the beginning of the Bible, there's a thing called a concordance, and it shows how the stories, each story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, how they, they align. Some of them don't have the same stories in so you think that four Gospels are the same stories written four times. Actually, they're different stories. Oh, oh, yeah, they are very, there's yeah. a lot of similarities, but they are very yes. different. So it's very, a good very, a good idea very. just to open up your, your Masonic Bible and see how, how the stories differ and then ask, why do they differ, you know, etc. Anyway, so I, it's a digress, I digress, sorry. All right. Oh, no, no, no problem at all. Okay. Uh, can you explain the emulation ritual? And wh wh where does that come from? And what is it? Well, the emulation ritual basically is the English ritual. And because nothing was written down, um, it was done by copying people. So one a new candidate would be shown and taught all the words and how to move in the lodge and what else to do by um, a fellow craft or a master mason. And so that is what we call emulation, just copying each other. And that's okay. how it was taught for hundreds of years. So 
then in 1730, um, the, the was it Masonry Discovered by Samuel Pritchard was published, and that gave more information about the degrees and the ritual, and the first time that the third degree was actually um, printed. And so when you read that, they used that masonry discovered as a, a monitor for many years, um, both in the Grand Lodge of the Moderns and in the Ancients. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, I, obviously, you're Scottish Rite Mason as well yes. as I am, but... Um, you, uh, in the second book, you say, uh, you call them morality plays, or not the Scottish Rite, but you see them as uh, morality plays. And right. I thought that was very interesting because when anybody asks me about the degrees in Scottish Rite, I just say they're morality plays. You're sitting there, you're watching theater, and yes. you're learning about morality. Is this, in your opinion, the proper way to not just explain Scottish Rite, degrees but all the degrees in freemasonry well i think the <clears throat> the first three degrees were invented as morality plays based on uh, the guilds and the guilds had morality plays and mystery plays and this is what they did it was part of our history it goes back to the 1300s so um they wanted, the first three grandmasters wanted the authorities to believe that what we were doing was a morality play. But um, when you look at it in detail, you see all the alchemy and uh, at a later date, you understand a Chinese connection and the whole thing starts to kind of unravel. Um, I think the Scottish Rite and the York Rite are more just simple morality stories. There isn't an under, under story. There isn't a hidden story in it. I think um, many people call Scottish Rite the University of Freemasonry. So what you should have understood in the first three degrees is explained to you uh, a second time in Scottish Rite. Well, I, that's a little bit tough. <laughs> a lot of things are in Scottish Rite that are not in the first three degrees. But, um, yeah, it, so what had happened, you know, that uh, uh, because of the success of, of the moderns and then the ancients, and then the moderns had aristocratic grandmasters, the ancients didn't get an aristocratic grandmaster for about uh, 30 or 40 years. So they were way behind the moderns. Uh, the Duke of, of um, Armath, I think his name is, was the first. Anyway, so um, they, uh, from there, they developed the, the other degrees and they became very popular among rich people or idle people who had the time, you know, didn't have a prop like gentry, they're living on unearned income. That's why they're gentry. And so there was little entertainment, you know, playing cards, going drinking, that was about it. You know? So now comes somebody comes along with, uh, with this organization with secrets and stuff. I could, I could understand it would be very interesting. Yeah. Mm. And so Scottish rights uh, tended to, from the, um, grew from the ancient side of Freemasonry, the ancients, uh, which then became 
they, they opened the first lodges in France, which were Jacobite lodges. And the Premier Grand Lodge was like five years behind. And so it, rituals were being uh, invented and what they call Ecossais rituals. And then with the, the American War of Independence, these rituals found their way into America. A lot of French troops were fighting in France under, for example, like uh, General Lafayette. He brought French troops with him and they brought the rituals as well. And um, so in America, York Rite and Scottish Rite are really large, much larger than they are in England. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, one thing I found kind of odd, uh, this is again in, in book two, uh, on page 56, you okay. mentioned the Mary Toft Oaks. She claimed to give oh, yeah. birth to rabbits. <laughs> I, yes. I was dying laughing. I'm like, of all the things I, I read in this, I was not expecting to read that. I, I, I right. giggled a lot. I'm still giggling now about it. How, what was that all about? Well, you know, that's the kind of superstitions that people had in those days. They, they really, you know, there was a lot of um, gossip and uh, people just didn't understand science and presumably they thought it was possible. Um, I was just going to go onto a picture here and I'm looking, see if I can find the actual picture. Um, there's a picture again like Hogarth. I think Hogarth is just a, a, a phenomenal historian of, in image of, um, of what was happening in, in England at the time. There's a picture in uh, Quest for Immortality that shows Mary Hoth actually giving birth to rabbits. He <laughs> 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 drew the picture. Uh, I think you've got, let's see, uh, Taft, Taft. I'm not sure if she's in the, uh, let me quick, Taft, Taft. Yeah, I've uh, only gotten through 55 pages of the third book, so okay, I, if I would have so came across that, I would have said something. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those strange things he was, the, the doctor was the king's doctor, and he he actually had to go and investigate to see if this, you know, this rumor was true. I mean, there were other ones rather like um, uh, Old Parr. There was a person called Old Parr. Um, I forget his name is. Uh, he lived to be 140. Well, the average life expectancy in those days was 40 or 45. Mm. So 140... And he gave birth, he got married at a, a hundred and ten and gave her children. <laughs> Just un unbelievable. And uh, so again, the king's um, uh, what, what, the king's doctor went to investigate, you know, what you know what this is all about. But so yes, it obviously didn't give birth to, to rabbits, but people thought it was possible. They were believing all sorts of <laughs> You know, those days, it was just really, really weird. Oh, sorry. It's in the last book, uh, Royal Arch. Oh, OK. All right. The book about Royal Arch is only the first sections about Royal Arch and Scottish Rite. The second section is all about the um, esoterica from the third degree that didn't fit in, in the second book. And on page 183, there's a picture. I don't know if you can see, I don't know how we can 
do this. Uh, oh, I think I got it here. Hold on a second. Oh, you have it? Oh, oh okay. yes. And she's oh, okay. lying on the left yeah. side with her legs open and rabbits coming out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to get to this. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's something else <laughs> yeah but this is you know and so in this in this one picture there's all sorts of things that that um hogarth is trying to to, to tell us and the picture um is called superstition uh what's it called because in those days you know they still believed in witchcraft and um this picture here is called uh credulity, superstition, and fanaticism. And uh, you've got all sorts of little vignettes in here. <laughs> and Mary Taft is one of them. <laughs> so after writing all these books, where do you go from here? Yeah, where do I go from here? Well, I have um, two books um, in mind. One book is... So uh, for a long time, I've been giving short lectures on... YouTube called Spiritual Freemasonry. Some of the content of my books are on the videos, but there's a lot of content that is not there. Um, I'm uh, getting the scripts of all uh, 75 videos and making a book out of it and putting them in proper order so that um, some to do with ritual, some to do with lodge. Um, one of my most popular videos, I think it's like 15,000 views, is to do with how Masons dress. Should we dress in black? Do we have to dress in black? Why do we have white gloves? The white gloves actually come from Taoism again. <laughs> because the Taoists, when they go into the temple, they wash their hands. Well, they don't now. They've just given a wet towel. There's a person handing out wet towels at the entrance of the temple. The idea is that they don't bring negativity into a spiritual place. Hmm. And so the, the Freemasons made a kind of compromise that we would wear white gloves so we don't br bring negativity into exactly the same story. But anyway, that's so, you know, that um, uh, about why we wear black. We wear black because we're in mourning for the death of our grandmaster, Hiram Abiff. It's really simple. We're in mourning. Still are. Hmm. And okay. also, grand, uh, the Grandmaster Hiram Abiff didn't have a funeral. That's a little bit strange. If King Solomon died, the whole country would be in, in six months mourning and a big funeral. Well, the other Grandmaster Hiram, nothing. It's not in the ritual. <laughs> and and uh, just one more thing. It, hmm. Will you be releasing hardcover copies of your book, or is there any way... Um, fans of your book can get signed copies or are you doing anything yes. like that so if you go to my website which is uh chris earnshaw.com um uh you can order signed copies from me it takes costs a little bit more because i have to get them from amazon and i have to send them back to people um but i i sign copies all the time yes and i have a unique signature something a little bit unusual <laughs> but um, it's all in in you know fitting the the spiritual kind of idea of the books but uh yes um hard copies uh, amazon is now making hard copies so i have to think about how to do it 
Um, there's also a, a sixth book. So the fifth book is, is all these short lectures which can be used for education and there'll be questions and answers and to get people thinking about the, some of the things I talk about. The, the last book um, will take me a, a couple of years, but is to do about with all the nonsense and the, the fighting and the feuding between lodges and all the underhand stuff that goes on that really upsets me. You know, people try and take shortcuts and um, they, they, they do all sorts of dirty tricks <laughs> to become a master of a lodge or something. You know, that's not, not the issue. The issue is the edu The journey is important, not the destination. You know, if you're a, a grand officer, it means nothing if you don't know anything about Freemasonry. <laughs> I, I, I would agree, yes. Yeah, I de definitely so me, would agree with that. So I wrote in, I think in the, in the one you're reading now, Quest for Immortality. Um, I'm not impressed by medals and uh, beautiful aprons. That means nothing to me. What impresses me is talking to a mason that really understands these issues, like you asking me. You know, people don't. You know, and uh, they all want to be the... the the captain of the ship, you know, but they don't know how to put coke into the oven, <laughs> into the boiler. You know? They don't know the, the, how to use the sextant. They don't know all the small things, but they want to be the captain of the boat. You know? It's a shame. The most important title is brother. Yeah. Uh, without good. that, it, none of this means anything. Yeah. No, none yeah. of our titles mean anything to the outside world, the outside world of Freemasonry. Nobody understands it. And it nobody gets it except right. all of us that are within the fraternity. Yes. And um, that's, you know, one of the things like, like Wesley, I wouldn't be, have this opportunity to meet you, you know, in Illinois. Yeah. It, it's yeah, just, it's open, it's just bridges across the world. Yeah. You know? I, I would never have met you, never would have read the yeah. books. I might have come yeah. across them but yeah when i seen them like oh those look interesting and yeah. you know i picked them up probably just uh a couple of days before you first contacted us on, on twitter i was like wow yeah. okay maybe this is where i'm supposed to head with this so you know that, that it was really fascinating brother <laughs> earnshaw i cannot thank you enough for this interview it oh, it is my honor and pleasure to be doing this with you um I, I hope that once I'm done with the other two books, uh, we can do this again and elaborate more on those. And if the fifth book comes out, uh, be sure to buy that and read that <laughs> as well. But if I can just kind of summarize, you know, the books seem to, there's a book for each degree. And uh, very simply put is the, the first book, the first degree awakens the soul, the transmission of the light, it, it illuminates the soul. And then the second degree, which is about alchemy, but it actually is about circulating energy inside one's body, what they call chi energy, but it's how to, to uh, empower your soul. And then the third degree um, is actually in two books because it's a very deep subject. And the first part talks about the importance of immortality and how it was discussed even in Parliament, they had um, people raising points, talking about 
books on immortality. I don't think modern parliaments would worry about immortality, but in those days, it was a big subject. And then in the second book, the Royal Arch book, then I talk about uh, how the uh, esoteric hidden teachings of Freemasonry show how this uh, the soul, which has been empowered with a strong energy, can then leave the body and um, it's now a perfected mason. And that's the word the Chinese call it. The perfected man is when he's able to leave, the spirit's able to leave the body. And the spirit is able to heal people and alleviate human suffering when it's outside the body. So it, it has a reason for, for, it's not just for the, the experience, but for actually something to do when it's outside the body. That's what all these four books, four degrees all boil down to. <laughs> Great, yeah. I, I can't tell you more, how much more, yeah. I, yeah, I'm losing my words here, but how much they mean to me and what I've discovered for myself in them. Uh, yep. I would encourage every Mason that does like reading, even if you don't like reading, yeah. get the books. If you come out with cliff notes for, for those guys that don't like reading, great. <laughs> but it, they are very, very fascinating. And I think this can enrich every every Freemason's <laughs> life. I, thank you you. Know, I can't, can't thank you enough for writing them. And, you know, again, for, for doing this interview. I greatly appreciate it. You know, if, if it makes Freemasonry more interesting for people, then uh, I've done my job. Yes, I, I, you've done more than a job. You've done very, very <laughs> great work. And I think it will last throughout uh, the ages. As you know, <laughs> I, don't know. I, I don't know how long the ages will last, but as long <laughs> as they're able to, people to get their hands on them, they will be enriching lives and definitely Freemasons' lives. Yeah. So. I want people to think, you know, a lot of Masons just go through the, the without thinking, they just stumble along, you know, they get elevated, they go through the chairs, but they haven't sat down to think about simple things, you know, simple questions. Um, yeah. I have so many simple questions uh, in the books. It's, what does this mean? Why do they do that? You know? Well, anyway. <laughs> okay. Once again, thank you very much. Um, for everyone out, watching out there, uh, you're watching at Refreshment Masonic Video Podcast with Brother Christopher Earnshaw of the Spiritual Freemasonry Series. Once again, thank you all for watching. Everyone have a good night. Thank you. <laughs>